week, remember last week we talked about um, being the sons of Abraham and uh, how it is by faith in Christ that is counted as righteousness and because of that righteousness we are considered to be the sons and the daughters of Abraham and, and remember Paul's writing this because there is some stuff going on in the church um, that caused him great concern stuff that arose after he left and so he's having to write to these churches in this region and um, in this part of the letter he's dealing with something where the word that is not found in Hebrew or Greek um, the word is legalism um, but he's he's dealing with this issue in the church you remember um, we'll go we'll go over it but um, Peter got sucked up in it um, by saying you know, your faith in Christ wasn't enough. You had to pick up some of the Jewish traditions and laws. Um, the, the, um, the, there were those who re required, were trying to require Titus to be circumcised, these uh, Judaizers. And so we pick up here, and Paul just wants um, the people of Galatia to understand that the law of Moses is not the same as the works of the law that he's talking about. And let's read what he says here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there's three th key things that um, Paul is saying here with regard continuing the thought that we are as Gentiles We are the sons and the daughters of Abraham by faith Faith is the key faith was it was counted unto Moses as righteousness because of his faith And so there's three things he says is though who rely on the works of the law are under a curse He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and then he says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so I just want to jump right into those three points of the law under a curse. So, so the opposite of a curse is a blessing. And so Christ became a curse for us that you and I might receive or be the blessing, have the blessing of Abraham, which is what we talked about last week. And since the blessing of Abraham, it says right here in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the promised blessing of Abraham with our faith is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so those who rely on works of the law are under the curse generally means that they're without the Holy Spirit. They're not operating in the spirit. They are operating in the flesh. They're operating according to the standards established by man and not the grace that was established by God. And so um, 
because there's no Paul, Paul couldn't say you're being legalistic here. Now, he's not writing in English, so when I say there's no Greek word for legalism, Paul is trying to get across a concept here that we would call legalism. Um, it would have been great if Paul would have had that word. We would have understood it. But he didn't have that word. And so he had two options when dealing with the legalism that had crept into the churches in the region of Galatia. And again, the legalism that had crept in was this, that faith was enough to get you saved, but works were required to keep you saved. And so the Galatians had begun to embrace that truth that, yes, they accepted Christ by faith, but in order to walk out their Christianity, now they had to get back into doing the works of the law. And so Paul, when he has two options, he can use the term law and um, trust that the context would clarify this meaning of the misuse of law, or he could use a phrase like works of law, which always in Hebrew culture had a negative, a negative connotation. And so he had to distinguish. If he just said the law, people would immediately go to the law of Moses. And keeping the law of Moses is not sin. Keeping the law of Moses, the law as we know that is written in the book, it's not sin. It is trying to be religious by doing works or the works of law. So it's one thing to say that um, you're not going to covet um, and, and therefore, you're going to make sure that you put nothing before your eyes that is ever law would be of it because it's not an eye issue, it's a heart issue. So the works of the law would be, I'm going to sit in a room and I'm just going to paint everything white and I'm, I'm going to wear just white clothes and I'm not going to look at anything colorful. And if I look at anything colorful, it's sin. So I've got to make sure that I only look at white. That would be the works of law. Whereas thou shalt not covet was a heart issue. It wasn't you, you should, it was that you should be um, satisfied with what God has given you and not spend your time looking at other people and wanting more and trying to do more to somehow um, find yourself to be spiritual enough to have what other people have. And so Paul's trying to differentiate here between the works of the law and the law of Moses. And the difference between the law as God intended it and the law that we would call legalism. And so Peter, remember, Peter is the guy who um, is up on the roof taking a nap when he has the vision and all the animals come down out of heaven. The animals the Jews were not allowed to eat. They would be called unkosher. And all these unkosher foods came down on this sheet, opened up, and the voice of the Lord says to Peter, arise and eat. And, the Lord, and Peter says, not so, Lord, because these are unclean. And the Lord spoke to Peter's heart and said, look it, whatever the Lord has made clean is no longer unclean. And Peter got that revelation. And the reason God gave him that revelation is because a Gentile was about to send messengers to, to Peter to bring him to his house because this, this Gentile Roman had questions about relationship with God. He was considered to be a godly man. He wanted to know Jesus. Now remember the Jews thought they believed wholeheartedly that Gentiles were dogs. They, they, they were uh, the, the scum of the earth. And so for Peter to take this pure, true gospel, this, 
this relationship with Jesus and to go and present it to Gentiles caused a big stir in the church. And Peter went to the church in Jerusalem and he defended what he did. He told them the story. So Peter is the guy who speaks to the leaders in Jerusalem to say, look at what the Lord has redeemed, he has redeemed. There's neither Jew nor Greek. I mean, Paul writes this later, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, rich or poor. There's none of that in God. So Peter, the guy who got the church in Jerusalem to accept the fact that Jesus came and died for Gentiles as well as Jews, somewhere along the line, somebody told Peter, you are not being godly because you have forsaken our kosher laws. Peter, you're eating with Gentiles, and you're eating Gentile food, and you're a Jew, and you can't do Peter, how this? How could you be the guy that goes and convinces all of the church that we're to embrace the Gentiles, and now you've gone back to the Gentiles, and the very faith you presented to them, you've told them is not good enough. Faith in Christ alone is not good enough. You guys have to start eating kosher food. You guys have to start observing all of the Jewish holidays. If you're not eating kosher food and you're not observing the holidays, then you're really not saved. And so Paul writes to Peter and chastises them and lets them know what in the world are you doing. And so we have these the difference between legalism and the work of the law. So Peter, under pressure from Judaizers, resubmitted to the dietary standards. And, and Paul, when he writes, he says this about Peter. He says, if I build again those things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. In other words, if I tell you you've been saved by grace, and then I turn around and tell you, well, it takes more than grace, it takes works, then that means everything I told you in the beginning is null and void. And so Paul's saying, Paul, what Peter, what you're doing is, is you're nullifying the heart of the gospel and so he is writing to the Galatians because Peter's the one who presents it to the Galatians not only that the Judaizers had come to the Galatians you remember and said any guy who gives his life to Jesus in order to be fully saved has to be circumcised after salvation and so Paul's having to write that's why he said remember in in the beginning of chapter 3 he says oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you you know who who has deceived you who has cast a spell upon you to make you think that salvation is more than simply faith in the completed work of the cross and faith in who Jesus is. And so when he talks about works of the law, he's not talking about the good works that we would do um, in reliance on the Holy Spirit. He's not saying we shouldn't do good things. Um, you know, it's I would say in our culture today, the one group, well, there's two groups, but the one group of people that's highly deceived would be Jehovah's Witnesses because Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, um, well, that there's a lot of things they don't believe, but what they believe, though, is you have to work. You have to do works of the law in order to justify your salvation. And if in that process you become persecuted or ridiculed or rejected, all the more better. Uh, they, they, they will go back to Kingdom Hall, and they will give their testimonies of the persecution as they try diligently to fulfill the works of the law. That's why um, if you go to Trader Joe's in San Dimas, they've got their whole display out front of the door. They're sitting there, and they don't say a word to you. They'll just sit there with the table and expect you to come up to them. That's why in Azusa, if you look, every Saturday there are masses of people walking our streets 
And they may not stop and talk to you, but they're walking and they're holding up the watchtower as they walk, hoping that you'll stop them and ask them what it's about. But their whole premise is without doing those works of the law, their salvation is not secured, which is true because they don't have true salvation anyway, but not for us. So um, the works of the law are self-reliant efforts to demonstrate um, virtue to people and to God. In other words, we would call that today, we would call it a religious spirit. We would say someone who is trying to do religious things to prove to others how spiritual they are. There's not a true heart behind it. It's not truly serving God. It is trying to convince people that we are spiritual or is putting things upon ourselves that somehow we can meet out or measure out and say, because I don't do this, because I don't go here. In the early parts of, of, uh, of the church in, in the great revival, like the Zeus Street Revival that moved into um, the great revival through Angelus, um, there were a lot of things they were said, if you do these things, if you, you're not really saved. If you go to dances, you're not really saved. If you play cards, you're not really saved. If you go to movies, you're not really saved. This whole list of, of works. And so you had to do the works of the law. You had to make sure you were never caught around playing cards. You had to make sure you never listened to, to ungodly music. You got to make sure uh, you never danced um, because those were considered to be ungodly. And so you had to pick up this religious spirit. You had to pick up these works that would deny yourself things that the Bible doesn't say anything about. I can guarantee you playing cards are not in the Bible. Playing go fish is not going to eliminate your salvation or playing solitaire or gin rummy, whatever it is. I can tell you there is dancing in the Bible. Yes. Dale says amen to that. <laughs> um, there are more than pianos and organs for musical instruments in the Bible. Read Psalm 150. All those instruments were to be brought together to make a joyful noise. And so these works of the law, these, these things that were being added on, we have a tendency in the church today to add things on to measure spirituality. And what happens is we begin to judge people not based upon their love for Christ, and, and their salvation, we begin to judge people for the things that they're doing that we wouldn't do or the things they don't do that we would do, which was the very problem that was happening in the Church of Galatia. They were beginning to, all of a sudden, Gentiles were, were having to get circumcised. All of a sudden, they couldn't eat bacon. You know, they could only eat kosher food. I'm so glad there were pigs on that blanket that came down out of heaven, you know. <laughs> yes, Dale. Please do. The holiness movement that you're talking about wasn't just confined to the Pentecostal movement. It penetrated all uh, the entire evangelical church. Sure.
And and the irony of something like that is in those churches, it was, I, I remember the first time I wanted to play guitar in my church growing up. Fortunately, I had a really cool pastor, but we didn't have a lot of cool people in the church, and they were aghast that I was playing not just a guitar, but an electric guitar on the platform of church. And here's part of the irony. They want to do hymns only. Most of the hymns that the Wesley brothers wrote were bar songs. They just changed the words. So a lot of the hymns sung in church, the melodies came straight out of drunkenness. And all they would change the words. And that was okay, but don't write a song only for Jesus on a guitar because God isn't going to. And, and so works of the law are always in our face. There's always things we're going to, they're going to try to be put upon us um, or we're going to put upon ourselves to try and meet out spirituality or the person that we work with, the person sitting next to us or the person we see every Sunday or the person that we work with, that we truly are saved. And, and so the measurement of our salvation is based upon what we're not doing as opposed to this. When Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, First of all, I remember they asked him, which is the greatest commandment? The lawyers asked him. And Jesus said, the first command, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your strength. And then he said, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And that conversation being, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. But then Jesus said, a new command I give unto you, and this was the command, that you love one another as I have loved you by this, all people will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Now, if you think about that for a moment, he was talking to his disciples. So the one another's he was talking about loving would be like talking to this room and said, people will know our faith is real by the way we love each other in this room by the way our community spreads out, and then that love begins to be displayed in the lives of other people. And so our, our Christianity is not measured by what we do or don't do. Our Christianity is measured by what's already been done. Jesus is the one who did it. There's nothing, the point Paul is making here is there is nothing, nothing, nothing you could ever do to merit salvation salvation is a work of faith and if we live according to faith then we are the sons and daughters of abraham so let's continue so judaizers said it was okay to start the christian life by faith but then later you have to do some of the work yourself i am I don't know if amazed is the right word. Probably is. Flabbergast is probably a better word. And how many pastors I know who don't spend that much time praying, who don't have a prayer life. And I am, the more I read this book, um, I'm, I'm in the midst of doing something I did a long time ago, but I'm in the midst of reading every 
prayer and every story about every time Jesus prayed. And the reason I'm doing that is because I am blown away by the fact that Jesus being fully God and being fully man spent so much time praying. Now, prayer is a conversation. We, we know that. But when I go to Luke 6, here's, here's Luke 6 and, and uh, John 17. Those are the two prayers that just boggle me. And there are lots of other times Jesus prays. But in Luke 6, it says this. He had all these disciples who were following him. But then he prays all night so that he can select the 12. And it's the first time the word apostles is ever used in Scripture. So Jesus had a number of followers, but when it came time to choose the 12, he's God. I mean, no, he's, he's fully God, but he's fully man. But it says he prayed all night on choosing the 12. And then when it goes down and gives the list of the names of the 12 that he chose, when it gets to Judas, because there's, there's two Judases who are disciples, the second Judas, it says this. Judas, who would betray him. So I'm going, how can God, the Son of God, who's fully God, fully man, talk to God all night and come up with 12 guys and one of them's going to betray him? And this is just, this is not the Bible, this is Rick's thought. It could very well be the Father said, okay, here's the plan, here's how it's going to play out. These are the 12 you're going to pick. But you know, um, somebody's going to have to betray you. So Judas is going to be a betrayer. I mean, that conversation, that it says all night. It wasn't a one-hour prayer. It was an all-night prayer. Jesus and the Father talking back and forth, and he picked the 12. Our life in Christ should flow out of prayer meetings. Our life in Jesus should should flow out of our conversation with the Father, and therefore the works that we do that flow out of that will not be works of the law, will not be legalism, will not be some sort of measure or standard that somebody has put upon us that says, if you don't do this, there's nothing worse. There is nothing worse than a prayer meeting that doesn't have Jesus show up. There is nothing harder than trying to force yourself to pray for an hour and after five minutes in you've prayed about everything you can think of to pray I'm, I'm, I'm I've read a book I'm rereading right now called the city of prayer and it's the story of Austin Texas and and how all the churches have had 24 7 prayer for 10 years now a, a different church takes a different day of the month and that church, and there's more than one church committed to that day, but they commit to pray for 24 hours straight for that city. So there's been 24-hour prayer, prayer covering over the city for 10 years. But before it happened, one of the pastors who started this felt like prayer was one of the main things that was missing in his church. So he preached 52 weeks on prayer. Every week he taught a different aspect of prayer. He said at the end of the year he had less people praying than he did before he started preaching on prayer. It's because he came to realize that after he was done, he made prayer sound so hard and he had to be so spiritual to do it that nobody felt qualified to pray. 
Bottom line is prayer is just talking to Jesus and then stopping to listen to him talk back. And when he talks, you got this book to measure it against. But works of the law would be going to a prayer meeting and forcing yourself to pray when God's not there. Because it doesn't become a conversation because it becomes more about it's Wednesday night, I have to go to prayer meeting as opposed to it's Wednesday night, I'm going to meet with the brothers and sisters and we're going to spend time with Jesus. We're going to worship him, we're going to talk to him, we're going to pray about things that are on his heart and we're going to see what God's doing. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says these Judaizers said, hey, faith is good. You got to have faith to get saved. But in order to be really saved, in order to make sure you really got it, now you got to start eating kosher food and now you got to get circumcised. And so um, the problem with the Judaizers is not their failure to follow the details of the law. The problem was they missed the larger lesson of the law. And here is the lesson of the law because the lesson of the law is in the law. So to know the heart of what God really meant when he gave the law to Moses to give to the children of Israel, let's go back and look at what God said to Moses when Moses gets the law in the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, in order to keep the law requires a heart. It's not based upon the actions of your body. It's not based, it requires the engagement of your heart. This is what God says. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the first thing God told Moses to tell the children of Israel, the sin, God is going to have to circumcise your heart. In other words, he's going to have to cut away the sin, cut away the, the, the things of Egypt, cut them off your heart so that you can, and not only you, but your offspring, so that you will love God. They had all this other stuff that they thought was love. He says, your heart, keep the law. If you're going to just keep the law on your mind, if you're going to keep the law out of legalism and not allow your heart to be circumcised, then the law is going to become a drudgery to you and it's going to become too hard to do. The second thing he says, it requires the fear of the Lord. He says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And remember, the fear of the Lord is not like Halloween, I'm afraid. The fear of the Lord is the honor and respect and awe and power of the living God being present in your life. To know that he speaks to you, that he has a plan for you, that he has a purpose for you, and to walk that out. And the third thing is, according to the law, to keep the law requires faith. Deuteronomy 1, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. So he's talking about to Moses about the things that God spoke to the children of Israel, and they didn't believe. You do not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in a way to seek you out to a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. In other words, God said, look it. Even though I showed up 24 hours a day, there was a cloud to lead you by day, there was a fire to lead you by night, you didn't have enough faith to believe in what I said, and therefore you didn't keep what I said. Part of keeping the law is believing God and believing that God has a purpose for that to be a part of our heart. And so I believe Paul is contrast 
faith, not with the Mosaic law, but he's contrasting faith with legalism or a religious spirit. So if I'm going to paraphrase what is being said here, I would say it this way. All who cease to live wholly by faith and apply themselves to keeping the law in their own strength in order to earn God's fullest favor are under the curse of the law. Paul is saying, look it, if you think faith is not enough, but somehow there's something you have to do in your own strength in order to merit salvation, he says you are back under the curse of sin and the law because Jesus came to fulfill the law and to set us free from the law. Faith, which is, a, is the opposite of pride and legalism, is what makes a person righteous before God. We need to remind ourselves of this every day. Our relationship with God, God looks at our heart. He looks at our faith. He doesn't look at what we're doing. He looks at what's motivating what we're doing. That's the difference. It may be the same thing. What I'm doing may be motivated by God, and God looks upon it as faith. But if it's not motivated by God, if it's only motivated by my self-worth, Am I trying to work hard enough to earn God's favor and to show everybody what a good Christian is? That's the works of the law. That's legalism. If the heart and faith are not involved in what we're doing, in the works that we're doing, then they're nothing more than just works. They're not counted unto us as faith. Listen to what, I mean, Habakkuk says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, we're not supposed to live by some self-esteem or in trying to please others. We're supposed to live according to faith, according to what the Lord sets before us to do. If the Mosaic law was not based on faith, then there would seem to be a big contradiction in Paul's teaching. Listen to what he says when he writes to the Romans. He said, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So faith is what upholds the law. The law is not what proves faith. Let me say that again. Faith is what upholds the law. Keeping the law does not prove faith. Because you can keep the law and have no faith. You can do all, you can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every day. You can pray or, or speak words of prayer every day. But if there's not faith in, in that what God has said he's going to do and what you're doing, it's nothing more than works of the flesh. Nothing more. Paul also says in Romans 9, he says, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but is as if it were based upon works. Paul summarizes the whole thing. The children of Israel were in sin according to the law because they did not pursue the law by faith. They pursued the law by works. And again, you know I'm not talking about not doing works because Paul also says faith without works is dead. So again, faith is the motivation for the works we do. Works are not the proof of our faith. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Paul knew that he stood under a curse for
for all the years he had been a lawkeeper. And just let me go back and, and, and re read to you the things Paul said about himself, who considered himself to be the most spiritual of all Jews. He said, I was the Jew of Jews. I was the man. But listen to his assessment of himself and how, how well he kept the law and what it got him. When, when he said from a legal standpoint under the law, he had been blameless. Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Isn't that great? Paul says, here's the proof of how Jewish I was. I was killing Christians. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. When he excelled over all his contemporaries in zeal for the law. We read this when we did the first chapter of Galatians. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So Paul says, I was, not only was I advancing beyond the, my peers, I was advancing beyond people older than me. And finally he says this, he did not know the first thing about obedience that comes from faith and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. After he said, I was the, the, the zealot of all zealots, I kept the law not only better than my contemporaries, but better than anybody who'd gone before me. He says this when he writes to the Romans, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And Paul includes himself in that statement. So Paul said, look it, if you're just gonna measure people by the law, then I should be God. I was the dude, but I had no faith. And because I had no faith, the works that I did of the law were nothing more than the works of man, were the works of the flesh. They had no value. God wasn't telling me to kill Christians. I was killing Christians because I was zealous for the works of the law. Once I encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, not only was I not killing them, I became one of them because I understood the love of God. I understood what faith is all about. What hope is there when you've tried to bribe God with your pitiful virtues? And that's what a lot of people do. They try to convince God that they're spiritual by well-sufficient creator by, by these virtue. When you've, when you've insulted the all-sufficient creator by exalting yourself to barter with him, your morality in exchange for his mercy. When, when, we, when we get to this place to where we try and measure out how good we are versus God's mercy, when the bottom line is we'll never be good enough to merit his mercy. That's called grace. Unmerited favor with God. There's nothing you will ever do. You will never be good enough. Bottom line. If you are going to try to build your relationship with Jesus based upon your own goodness, give up you're not going to get there because it is only by faith and that's Paul's point here to these Galatians who had accepted Jesus and we're now trying to add more on to it there's no hope at all unless God in his remarkable love is willing to transfer the sentence of death to somebody else which he did he transferred it to Jesus so here's the heart of the gospel here's the heart of how we live our lives 2nd Corinthians 5 21 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus, fully God, fully man, to become our sin, even though he never knew sin, to bear the punishment, the wrath of God for our sin, so that we might become righteous before God. Jesus wasn't guilty for one moment of legalism. Jesus was guilty of one thing and one thing alone, and that he loved us enough to put on skin for all eternity to come and become flesh and to bear God's wrath for our mess up, for our sin. He trusted his Father perfectly. He lived in the power of the Spirit. The first thing Jesus proclaims when he preaches is he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news. Jesus walked fully man, fully God, walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled the law perfectly because he knew that at the root of the law was faith that only worked through love. So when he experienced the curse of the law on the cross, it was not his own, but it was ours. And the prophet Isaiah already talked about this. Here's an interesting thing. Um, Jews in Israel today are not allowed to read Isaiah 53. Elisa told us of, she, she established a friendship with a rabbi's wife, and they began to meet for conversations over Scripture. The rabbi's wife's intention was to convince um, Elisa that Christianity was wrong and she should come back and be fully Jewish and embrace the Mosaic law and Elisa was trying to convince her that Jesus was Messiah and so Elisa would share and this woman would go back to her rabbi husband and get the information for the passage of scripture and then come back and share it with Elisa when Elisa started sharing Isaiah 53, she says, we don't read Isaiah 53. We, Isaiah 53 is for then, it's not for today. Probably one of the best commentaries I've ever read on Isaiah 53 is written by a man I disagree with on a lot of stuff. Um, Jamak's all about the gospel and is according to God. And it's all about the gospel in Isaiah 53. Um, it's an incredible book that if any Jew read it, they, they should, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they should just give their heart to Jesus. It's, it is a powerful book. And so here's, here's what Isaiah said. Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that made us whole and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way in other words we're just out trying to do our own thing and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the good news 
For we who at times come under the curse of God for sin of moral self-reliance, so even though we're saved, we all have a tendency to pick up our own nature. We all have a tendency to try and do things to somehow merit God's favor, which is unmerited. This is what Paul says. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is good news for us. That God does not count our weaknesses and our sins against us because Jesus paid the price. When we come to the Father through Jesus, Jesus is reconciling us to him. And, and basically, this is what happens. When you and I come in prayer to come before the Father, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and says, Father, this one comes under my blood. This one comes under the completed work, and therefore, because of my blood, they are righteous. And because they are righteous, they can come into your presence and they can fellowship with you. It is only by the blood of Jesus. It is only by God reconciling us through the work of the cross that you and I can even say God's name, and he'll listen to us. But not only does he listen to us, he encourages us to talk to him, to ask things for his kingdom to come and his will to be done in the name of his son who completed the work for us. We receive the promise of the spirit through faith. We talked about this in the beginning that scripture says we can only love God because the Holy Spirit has poured love into our hearts and that love he's poured into our hearts enables us to be able to love God. And so Paul sees the blessing of Abraham summed up in the Holy Spirit, as I read in the beginning in verse 14. He said, this is the blessing, the being reconciled as the sons of Abraham, by faith, we have received the Holy Spirit. So the blessing of being the sons of Abraham is we have this gift called the Holy Spirit, which each person, regardless of denomination, each person receives the Holy Spirit when they get saved. You cannot get saved without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit bearing witness to your heart, the revelation of who God is, it is the Holy Spirit is the one who tells us who God is that we accept by faith and therefore we enter into a relationship with him. So the Spirit is received through faith. When we quit holding on to our desires of self-exaltation and look away for righteousness and strength to be the grace of God, then we experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We don't experience power because of our strength. We experience power because of our weakness. Because it is the scripture that says, in our weakness, he is made strong. That his burden is easy, his yoke is light. So the, these verses show us that the only way of this, but we know this by looking away from ourselves to the crucified Christ. And again, we know this, but we need to, we need to remind ourselves every day that I'm not getting up. I'm not spending time in devotion every day. I'm not getting in the morning and opening my Bible and writing a journal down because I'm trying to prove to God how spiritual I am. I'm getting up every day because I want God to talk to me. I want to spend time with him. I want my heart to be his heart. I want my ways to be his ways. 
It's not about me doing. It's about being as Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. I want to see what God's doing, and that's what I want to do. That's not works of the law. That's works of faith. That's walking out what God says. Here's the eight things Paul said, the eight main points he said in this passage you just read. He's telling the Galatians, do not be bewitched by those who want to supplement a life of faith with the effort of the flesh. He's saying, you did not receive the Spirit by the works of the law, but you received the Spirit by hearing in faith. He says, having begun with the Spirit, you cannot now end with the flesh. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you does so by hearing with faith, not by legalism. It is people of faith, not works, who are the children of Abraham and who inherit his blessing. People who take up the works of the law are under a curse, and the law itself pronounces it upon us. The substitutionary death of Christ is our only and all-sufficient hope of escaping God's wrath. And because of it, God is willing to grace us with his very spirit when we repent and turn from our own self-confidence. So, let me sum it up this way. We choose to walk under the blessing or under the curse. And, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. So, we, we, what sets us under one or the other is not what we do, but it's the spirit in which we do it. Circumcision, according to the Judaizers, was a work of the law. Circumcision for us today could be a matter of health, could be a matter of a parent's love for their child. It can be a curse, or it can be love. Embracing certain dietary restrictions could be a work of the law. It could also be a free act. Faith because you believe that's what God wants you to do to be healthy. It could be anything. Teaching kids church. Feeding the homeless. Leading a prayer set. Your job. That could all be a work of the law or an act of love which flows through faith. It depends on where your heart is. If you're teaching kids church because... Gina called you and you have to that's a work of law if you're teaching kids because you're part of this community and these kids are part of our community and you're having an opportunity to have them speak into your life and you speak into their life it's the same thing but now it becomes a work of faith see it has to do with our heart if you're feeding the homeless simply because you want people to know that you care about the homeless you know you got your reward if you're feeding the homeless because you genuinely care about them and your hope is that somehow by loving them, by giving them a cup of cold water, they're going to come to the knowledge of Jesus and be set free from the mental illness that has them in that place, that then becomes a work of faith. So whether we're under a curse or whether we're under grace, all depends on where our heart is when we do our works. And if we want to live in the work of faith, then we simply ask God this, in my life today, God, what are you doing? Because I want to do the same thing. And it may not, if, if God's not feeding the homeless in your life, 
you can't beat yourself up by thinking, boy, I'm not as spiritual as Janet because I don't go feed homeless people on Wednesday. Janet's life is not the measure of your spirituality. What measures your spirituality is where your heart is. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you think living out a legalistic life, doing things to look like you're a good person, doing things to look spiritual, if that's what you think you need to do, that's who you become. You become legalistic. But if you live out of, I simply want to love people where they are, and I simply want to love the ones God sets in front of me, and to be obedient to what he says, then you're living out of faith. So we either live out of faith or we live out of the curse. The decision of curse or blessing hangs on how you obey. And here's the you know, all important thing. Who gets the credit? Are you doing it for the glory of the Lord? Or are you doing it for the glory of your own name, your own reputation? Do you want to be known as a servant of Jesus? Or do you want to be known as a servant of homeless people? It could be the same thing. Be doing the same thing. The bottom line is this. The way we don't pick up legalism is to always make sure our heart is in alignment with what God's doing and we live that out of faith. And because of faith, we are reconciled to God we are his sons and daughters, and we are the sons of Abraham, and it is counted unto us as righteousness. Otherwise, it's all for naught. It's all for naught. Remember when Jesus tells the story of the separation of nations. He says there are sheep nations and there are goat nations. And the goat nations... Will God will say, be removed from me, be cast in the lake of fire because I did not know you. And their response is, but wait, didn't we? No, the, the, the Lord says to them, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. You know, I was in prison, you didn't come to visit me. I was sick, you didn't come. And their response is, but when were you hungry? When were you sick? When were you naked? We would have done that if we would have known that was you. And Jesus says, for as much as you've not done it to the least of these, you've not done it to me. When he turns to the sheep, he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison, you visited me. I was sick and you came to me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. <clears throat> they didn't do it to Jesus, but they did it with the heart of Jesus and they served people because of Jesus and it was counted in them as righteousness. And just remember this thing as we close. When you stand before God, Everything you do is going to be wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, or precious stone. Everything you've done is going to be put into a fire. Everything that's wood, hay, and stubble is going to be consumed by the fire. Everything that is gold, silver, or precious stone will remain because it's tested by fire. The works of the law are wood, hay, and stubble. The works of faith are gold, silver, and precious stone. And it could be you stand before the Lord and in your entire life, 
you led one person to the Lord and you discipled them and you were there for them every time they had a problem. You shared Jesus with other people as best you could. But when you stood before it and, and you heard all these testimonies about all these people who shared all these things and you sit in your chair and go, my whole life and I've only led one person to the Lord. I've only discipled one person. You'll stand before Jesus and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will make you ruler over much. It's about faithfulness to what God calls you to do. God never measures by quantity. God always measures by obedience. Whatever he asks you to do, are you doing it? Whether it's praying for somebody, whether it's giving a dollar to a guy who you know is going to take it and go buy a beer or a fix, and he asks you for it and you give it to him, whatever it is, if you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, it will never be a work of the flesh. It will never be a work of law. It will always be a work of the Spirit because you're doing what you see the Father doing. And that's all we're asked to do. Jesus says, that's all I did. And he said the works that he did, we would do greater works than these. Because he went to the Father, and we're here thousands of years later, still doing the work of the kingdom. So don't get caught up in legalism. Don't try and prove your spirituality by what you do or don't do. Live the life Jesus calls you to live. Ask him what he's doing today. Do what he says, and don't pick up anything else. And don't worry about what I think about you or what anybody else thinks about you or your spouse or your kids, as long as you're not in sin. But as you're obeying the word of the Lord. You're doing what you see Jesus do, and you're simply loving people, and they'll know you're his disciple because of your love. So, Father, we ask, Holy Spirit, that first of all, you would forgive us for picking up works of the law, for trying somehow to work harder to feel like we're doing enough. At the same time, Father, we need to be mindful <clears throat> that faith without works is dead faith. And so we need to be a people who are in conversation with you often, just as your son was. Jesus, who prayed all night, to choose 12 guys. Jesus, who in John 17, prays for himself, then prays for his disciples, and then prays for us. Prays this eternal prayer that we're still praying to be answered. God, we simply want to be found faithful. And so I ask that we wouldn't be as the Judaizers. We wouldn't be people trying to pick up of Abraham and to somehow prove we're spiritual. But we would be called the sons of Abraham and it would be counted unto us as righteousness because the Holy Spirit lives within us and we live our life according to faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.